ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi there, Selena Green again with you for a full Country Hour today. Coming up, what's in store for the dairy industry in 2024 and the end of an era for native timber logging in Victoria. We're still stranded with our large equipment to do native hardwood logging and we've started to pursue a pathway forwards in vegetation management. I'm worried about the same regulations and rules that stopped us from being in the hardwood timber industry could possibly stop the government being able to do any vegetation management. That's coming up in this next half an hour. If you want to talk back to me today, one three hundred triple two eight nine one is the number, or send a text to 0467 well, 2023 was another big year for the dairy industry and my next guest was in the thick of it, advocating for farmers at the national level. South Australian dairy farmer Rick Gladigo has just completed a two-year term as President of Australian Dairy Farmers. So a good time to cast a look back over the year that was and what this year could have in store for the industry. Rick Gladigo, thanks for coming on the Country Hour and good afternoon. Good afternoon, Selena. So let's Look back over 2023, which has only just left us, but uh, you know, how would you have rated the year that's just gone in terms of uh, what it was like for the dairy industry here in Australia? Oh, for us, it was exceptionally busy when we look back over the year at what we'd sort of been up to and, and the issues that were, were at hand. So, so it certainly rates as uh, a quite a busy one and... Hey, look, in the advocacy game, that's what we're here for. We should be busy, and we were. What were some of the real key issues uh, that that you've dealt with throughout the year? I, I know that um, the, the competition against the, the cheap imports that have been coming in have been a pretty big issue throughout 2023. Yeah, look, that was is one of it. But, OK, that was based off the fact of our, our really good Farmgate milk price, probably one of the best we've ever had, and and followed on from the year before of a very good farm gate price. So obviously our uh, our price here was higher compared to our competitors, especially the one across the ditch, which made it you know, quite easy for especially companies that have uh, processing in both both countries where they could bring product across at cheaper than what uh, what they could actually do it here. So that was one of them. But when we had uh, we still had the foot and mouth and LSD issue that we were were dealing with which uh, we were quite pleased the government has sort of kept on that and, and we've managed to, to keep it at bay and hasn't come into the country. Uh, EU free trade, uh, certainly a big one for dairy, which you know I consider dairy basically led that charge on, uh, on dairy's position when we had you know, 54 names under the geographical indicators that uh, were at risk um, and we certainly lobbied the government very hard, worked with the Trade Minister, Mr Farrell, and uh, we were really pleased in the end when the government did walk away. They basically walked away twice, which uh, for agriculture was, was fantastic for us. So we can keep using all those wonderful names that people have come to know, that the consumers actually know when they go to the supermarket. They know what fatter is and that it's not to be called some other, other name. So that was certainly a big one. Um, the supermarket, the Cole Saputo issue, certainly was got quite a bit of attention and really disappointed, though, how that turned out and the short-sightedness 
of the ACCC and saying she's she's good, mate, for the next five years. Well, we're, we've come out and said, well, we don't want to be like supermarket dollar milk in 10 years' time and say we told you so. So really disappointed with that, and especially when we had the six state presidents all said no to uh, that deal happening, and, and yet the ACCC have allowed it to go through and allowed it to go through without any conditions like... Um, the Voluntary Food and Grocery Code, which even they have said should be mandatory. Well, they didn't even come out and say, well, that should be mandatory for to, before this should go through. So things like that are, are disappointing. Um, we had the UK Free Trade Agreement as well, uh, which got ratified and is now in place, which is great. Minister Watt had the Labor Task Force that he put together, which ADF was invited to have a representative on that task force, which was a real... Uh, Real gold star for us, given there were only four commodity groups that were asked to actually participate in that. So we had uh, Anne Gardner from Northern Victoria, who's been sitting on that task force with the unions and the government as well, looking through the labour and visa issues, etc. And I think they've now um, moved that on to a new kind of group as well. And, of course, we finished off with the big one, which was the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which when I came into being the president, uh, I said to the... The water states, as in Victoria and New South Wales, South Australia especially, is we need to have an ADF task force that is focused on Murray-Darling Basin that has a united dairy position, which we never had before. So we had that in place, and that was more around expecting a reform process in 2024. We didn't sort of see this one coming, but for us it was really good. We had this small group together, uh, and we could push dairy's position and, and look, that's a bit of a concern going forward, just how this is all going to play out. But uh, we were, were pleased when you know, we were probably the first commodity group to actually meet with uh, Minister Plebisek the day of uh, of this actually going through the Senate. Uh, we, we met with her that afternoon and to be able to be fresh at hand with her on that and have those discussions and say, look, we want to be part of the, the consultation going forward. Um, dairy, don't forget dairy. We've got 900 farmers. 40 processes sitting in the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, this can really affect those livelihoods and those communities if if we get this wrong. And what is the main concern about how these changes may play out for the, those in the dairy industry in that in that basin area? Uh, comments that I've had from farmers in that area say it could basically put us in a permanent drought, and that as that's in high cost of water, constant high cost of water. Um, we're taking water out of the consumptive pool, and now we're, uh, which means there's less water available. Uh, we've got people who are working on, they, they run on temporary water licences. Uh, that water gets so expensive that, that you could go, look, it's just unaffordable, I, I can't farm on this, and people will shut their farms down. As you say, important for dairy to have a seat at the table going forward uh, as the, the, I guess, the intricacies of how this is going to work, particularly with those buybacks and, and what implications this might have for the price of water? Yeah, it's very much so. Like I said, there's 900 dairies and 40 processes sitting in that Murray-Darling Basin. And as farm, if farmers start going out, that puts the pressure on a processor. The processor can't make it viable. They, you know, they shut shop. That means that people don't have a job uh, and start leaving those communities and the roll-on effect starts happening and starts happening and starts happening, and uh, in the end, uh, communities start to basically perish, and they won't be there anymore because there is no work. So that that is the concern, and that's why Dairy said, look, we want to be part of this. We want to be part of what you're going to do. You know, we understand it. 
we understand what's going on. You know, the environment matters, and no one no one cares more about the environment than the farmers who actually farm in the basin. So, it's a fifth of Australia's milk production comes out of that basin. So, uh, yeah, it matters to Australia's dairy industry. It's been, you know, certainly the, I would say it's it's the leveller in the dairy industry of if milk had to come to South Australia or milk goes to the New South Wales market while New South Wales milk might go to the Queensland market. It's been the one that's that's helped level the playing field of, of where the milk actually comes from. And we lose that and it's uh, a big loss to the industry. So this is obviously still going to be an issue going into 2024. Uh, as far as other issues go, you mentioned there that uh, farm gate prices have been uh, quite healthy for a lot of farmers for the, for the past 12 months or so. Do you expect that to continue into this year? Oh, there's a bit of crystal balling. Um, look, there is talk of prices coming back, but if you sort of start reading some of the world market stuff, they're actually talking of the price coming up in the world market. So I think we've got to be very careful of... Uh, look, you know, We understand processes have been doing it hard and they're reviewing their how they're running their businesses, etc. But if we start winding the milk price back in Australia, we will see more farms leave. And that's why we've got to where we are on one of our lowest uh, production levels for nearly 30 years. So if we want to keep milk in Australia, if we want the consumer to be able to consume Australian dairy, then you know the, the farmers have to be making money out of it. And while we, then I say, everybody needs to be making money out of the whole dairy supply chain. But you also need to understand is that we've also had input pressures as well, especially around you know electricity this last 12 months. But being in South Australia, it always seems to be high. But last 12 months, we've seen that around the country where prices have increased by 25%. We've still got the the water pricing issue could be there for some. We've seen fuel sort of it's steadied out a bit now after it's quite a jump after COVID and still seeing feed prices aren't, aren't exactly cheap. So we've got the input cost sitting there as well. So it's not like we're all just raking the money in. Um, everyone's still watching their budgets of how that of how that's operating. I'm speaking to Rick Gladigo today, South Australian-based dairy farmer, who has just uh, wrapped up a two-year tenure as president of Australian Dairy Farmers. Since I've got you grazing into that crystal ball, what else do you see in there for 2024 for the dairy industry? I think climate environment is going to be... It's a big one for the this current federal government, the Labor government. They're very focused on that. And I see that as probably one of the ones that is probably going to be the... It's already moving towards that... Uh, of what we're actually doing and being more sustainable, etc., and and the climate side of it. And while I see the view of of what the government's trying to achieve, we've got to be careful that we're not setting targets that we actually haven't got things in place to be able to achieve those targets. So there's current talks of what we call Scope 3 emissions, which is the Scope 1 and Scope 2, which involves processes processes informing government of, of what their emissions actually are. Well, scope three then takes into what the farmers are actually doing in, in terms of emissions and their um, carbon numbers and those sort of things. But we, we're still trying to develop the tools and, and those sort of things to actually make that happen. So so we need the government to actually go, OK, we're setting a target, but we're actually going to help you guys trying to achieve that. We're, we're going to help fund some of this work because the industry just can't do it on their own. You know, and I do get a little bit sceptical. There's a lot of focus on agriculture and our emissions, whether it be carbon or methane, etc. But I mean, only got to go on the flight radar app and look at how many planes are flying around the sky and go, 
we really the problem? You know, are we really such a big problem here? So we need to, the government to work with us, not, not set targets that are going to make it really hard for us to farm and actually make it where we actually aren't competitive in the world market anymore and then we will constantly see more and more imported food coming in because uh, the farmers can't continue to compete against it. Well, Rick, thank you very much for joining us today to take a bit of a look back over the year that was and, and the year ahead. And uh, no doubt we'll have still more, plenty of opportunities to speak with you throughout the year. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Selena. Rick Ladigo, immediate past president of Australian Dairy Farmers, so he does remain on the board as business director. Well, after a stalled board vote, Mr Gladigo withdrew his nomination for the president role, which means that the National Lobby Group now has a new leader. Australian Dairy Farmers has been in financial difficulty after the Victorian Farmers Federation stopped paying its bills. Now a Victorian farmer has been elected to sort it out. Ben Bennett was born and raised on a family dairy farm in New Zealand. These days he has a dairy near Camperdown in Victoria and he told Warwick Long that he has his eye on red and green tape. It's pretty troubled water at the moment and it's, uh, I think it's time in the board, you know, we were in agreement. We need a strong Victorian voice in dairy. Uh, Victoria is the centre of dairy and dairy is, is Victoria, so... You know, we've got a very small board and I'm the only uh, Victorian uh, director on that. So it's sort of time to step up. What are your priorities then for for the National Lobby Group for Australian Dairy Farmers? What do you think this organisation should be and what should you be working on? It is a business and we want farmers to be profitable uh, sustainably. And uh, that that's ingrained in me, and I definitely want that for the greater bit of the dairy industry, and a great supporter of that. You know, we've got a lot of challenges in front of us. You know, sadly, we've had a declining industry for 20 years. We've got more challenges today than ever before. Advocacy is more important than again ever before. We've got a huge amount of green and red tape coming at us that we haven't seen before, and with changing goalposts. If we look at the catastrophe up in the Murray with the uh, buyback, you know, the Murray has been the cornerstone of daring for numerous decades. But, you know, that, that buyback and the implications of it, I don't think has been fully um, considered. We're, we're looking at, you know, the magnificent food bowl of Australia turning possibly into a dust bowl. So therefore, we need stronger advocacy to push our case. Very much focused on where government intersects, I'd, I'd imagine, with daring, going to, to, to your thoughts there and, and what sort of minimising that green and red tape. That's a big focus for you. Oh, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, profitability is the overriding thing. And as you probably know, we're a Group B sharehold partner in, in uh, Dairy Australia. So we have statutory oversight of Dairy Australia. Probably not many people know of that. Is Dairy Australia doing a good job? Um. Well, I suppose it's up to people, like our, particularly our organisation, to maybe give them a, a little bit more guidance. Uh, we definitely need to work together. I think the regional development programs need to be uh, lifted up more. They are all sovereign, okay? They get extensive funding from DA, but I think um, it, I'm a coal-faced person, you know? I don't necessarily believe the answers come from some central control point. I think they need to come out of the grassroots, and that's sort of where I come from, and um, we need to be very in tuned with them. Ben Bennett there, new president of Australian Dairy Farmers, and he was speaking to Warwick Long. You're listening to Selena Green.
on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. It's 20 minutes past 12 right now. Well, as of yesterday, Victoria's native timber harvesters have shut down their equipment as the industry came to an official end. After Supreme Court orders limited the areas available for logging, the industry's end date was brought forward by the state government from 2030. It's left many scrambling to find alternative work, with some contractors starting anew after decades in the industry. Natasha Shapova has this report. I worked very hard to get my business to where it is now and I wanted to build that for my family. Now we've got to take another pathway and I've got to start again. Warren Fenner is a contractor based in East Gippsland's Orbost, operating out of Club Terrace. He's worked in the timber industry his whole life, along with multiple generations of his family. In November 2022, Supreme Court orders limited the area available for logging and expanded protected areas after it found the state-owned logging agency Vic Forests failed to adequately protect the yellow-bellied glider and the endangered greater glider. The Victorian government then brought forward the ban on native timber harvesting from 2030 to today. But since the final announcement of closing the industry down, we had a bit of a scale back dramatically. We're back down to three full-time workers and two truck drivers. One went to Tasmania, one went to Singleton as heavy haulage driver, one went to Bendigo to work on civil construction and yeah, the rest have been, haven't got any work. As court orders drastically reduced Mr Fenner's capabilities, he's had to pivot his business away from timber harvesting. We're still stranded with our large equipment to do native hardwood logging and we've started to pursue a pathway forward in vegetation management. I'm worried about the same regulations and rules that stopped us from being in the hardwood timber industry could possibly stop the government being able to do any vegetation management. The Victorian government has established a forestry transition program to support businesses, workers and communities to transition out of native timber. But for a town like Orbost, which is largely made up of timber workers, Locals are now concerned for its future, as many may have to move away for new job opportunities. Gary Squires is the Secretary of Orbost's Chamber of Commerce and says the timber industry constituted about a quarter of the town's full-time jobs. So that's very significant in a town. It's it's over 100 jobs impacted directly and then there's the flow-on effects. So that has a big impact on our sporting clubs, on our schools, on our main street, on, on the traders in the main street. Mr Squires says the industry's closure would likely change the demographic of Orbost and the town would need to adjust to create new industries. A lot of people are going to have to either leave permanently or fly in, fly out type jobs. So there'll be a change in the demographics, a change in, in the type of business, perhaps a bit, little bit more reliance on tourism and hopefully we can develop some other small craft industries. But environmental groups insist the industry's closure is the right move for the future after decades of campaigning to end logging. Environmental Justice Australia's Dania Jacobs says the move is a step in the right direction, but more needs to be done to protect endangered species. The best way to halt the extinction crisis is to securely protect the habitat of endangered species in national parks. We're not there yet, but this will bring about the end of native forest logging, which is one of the biggest threats to our endangered species in Victoria. That was Dania Jacobs there, ending that report by Natasha Shapova. And native logging uh, also a ban on native logging also came into effect in Western Australia on January 1, so WA and Victoria as of yesterday. And you can read more about all of this on the ABC Rural website, abc.net.au.
forward slash rural. You're with Selena Green here on the South Australian Country Hour. Time to head to the Weather Bureau and a chance to say hello again to Jenny Horvat. Hi, Jenny. Good afternoon, Selena. So we've got some potentially interesting weather on its way this week. Yeah, that's right. So at the moment we've got a trough of low pressure over the eastern states and we've got another one over WA and then as we head into the middle of the week we'll end up with pretty much a broad area of low pressure over um, South Australia so leading to some unstable weather on the way. So having a bit of a look today, we did see some early morning thunderstorm activity around the, the southeast districts this morning, um, looking like most of the activity has now moved over the border to Victoria, where they do have a severe thunderstorm warning out for the storms on that side. Um, but it is a bit of a watch this space as the afternoon progresses, because we could see um, some development near the, the eastern border, especially near the southeastern districts this afternoon. So if we were to see some thunderstorm development happening, we could also see some severity along with those ones as well. So keeping an eye out for some damaging wind gusts, maybe some um, heavier rainfall at times and possibility for some hail as well with those storms across the eastern border. Over on the other side of the state, we've got a lot of cloud coming across ahead of the trough over our western west coast district and the northwest pastoral district. Couldn't rule out a little bit of shower activity embedded within that and moving towards Air Peninsula as we head into the later part of the day. Also seeing some thunderstorm activity up in the far northwest of the state as well at the moment and keeping an eye on those storms as well. Could be seeing some damaging wind gusts with those storms in the far northwest today as we head into the later part of the afternoon. Looking relatively clear across the northeast of the state and central parts also looking pretty clear but we could see some high cloud drifting across from the west um, but we're expecting not those showers really not to get too much further than Air Peninsula for today. As we head into Wednesday we are looking at a broad area of low pressure so quite a bit of instability across the state so again those thunderstorms are possible Broadly across the state, again, most likely around our western parts with that trough through there and again near the eastern border, but could be spreading a bit further into um, and maybe sort of meeting in the middle across the pastoral districts through there. Um, at this stage, maybe looking... Um, a little bit less likely to see the storms across the central part, so that includes York Peninsula and Kangaroo Island and the metropolitan area on the on the Wednesday. But as the week does um, progress, more broadly seeing the charts of thunderstorms across the state on the Thursday, maybe shifting a little bit north out of the southeastern districts on the Thursday. But again, um, with that broad area of low pressure anywhere. Um, could be really seeing a little bit of shower or storm activity. And um, a similar story as we head into the end of the week. Another trough um, forming over WA and that one will sort of get a bit of a move on as we head into the weekend. So we will slowly start to see things consolidating into more of a band and getting a bit of a progression as it all sort of starts to move across the state on on the Saturday there, maybe starting to clear out of the western districts on Sunday and then um, clearing to the east on Monday before clearing the state by Tuesday where we'll get another high pressure system coming in and maybe some coastal um, showers and looking at those temperatures returning to below average early next week following that change. Do have quite a bit of heat 
around at the moment, especially across northeastern parts of the state. And we do have a heat wave warning issued for the northeast pastoral district. Little bit hit and miss with where we'll see some higher totals depending on where we see those thunderstorms lining up. So broadly looking at our cumulative rainfall totals until the end of Saturday across the state, most likely only seeing sort of five millimetres or less, but with the thunderstorm activity maybe getting up to around 5 to 15 millimetres and those areas probably more likely across the western parts and the pastoral districts. Couldn't rule out some higher totals with those thunderstorms of falls of 15 to maybe 40 millimetres. Again, probably more likely around our western districts, Selena, but it is going to be a, very much a watch and see how this week evolves with that. Uh, that level of unstable air. Mm, All right, yeah, it is a bit bit of uncertainty there, as you say. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks, Selena. Jenny Horvat there from the Weather Bureau. The forecast for the western inland of New South Wales for tomorrow, uh, both the upper and lower western districts expecting a mostly sunny day. There's a medium chance of showers in the lower western district and in the southeastern parts of the upper western district, a slight chance everywhere else. There is a chance of a thunderstorm in the afternoon and evening as well. Overnight temperatures in the low to mid-20s, daytime temps in the high 30s to around 42 degrees. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Afternoon. Electric cars, they're something you see pretty commonly on the road these days. Maybe you have one yourself. Electric trucks, they're still very much a work in progress. Shortly you'll hear from a South Australian forestry company that's trialling an electric truck and we'll see how that's working out for them. But also there's a proposal to establish a hydrogen highway for freight movement between South Australia and Victoria. So more on that to come. Also, did you make a New Year's resolution? We're about to learn about how New Year's resolutions are historically linked to farming. Farm people would use farm magic to try to bring about a good outcome on their farm. Uh, So if you wanted to protect against bad weather, for example, you might bury a toad in a pot in a field. Poor toad. Farm magic, hey? That's an interesting one. Stick around for that. That's all after we get news headlines from Matt Coleman. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, a 75-year-old man will face court this afternoon over the fatal train truck crash on New Year's Eve. The truck driver was travelling east on the barrier highway towards Broken Hill when he collided with a freight train at a level crossing. Two rail workers driving the train were killed. A southeast logging company says its trial using a battery-powered electric truck to reduce carbon emissions has gone well despite some economic and operational hurdles. Fennell Forestry has been using the truck to transport logs since February last year. Managing Director Wendy Fennell says the company is still working through issues such as battery weight and a lack of government policy and framework. And the state government says the state's first mobile phone detection cameras will be trialled in several areas in June. The cameras will be set up in five locations, including on South Road and Port Road in Adelaide's inner west and on the Southern Expressway at Darlington, drivers won't face penalties during a three-month educational period. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. 
Well, our transport industry is looking at different ways of cutting emissions, and that could mean more green trucks on our roads. One company is exploring a multi-million dollar project to transport freight between South Australia and Victoria with zero emissions. Countrywide Hydrogen has launched a feasibility study into the construction of what they're calling a hydrogen highway between Adelaide and Melbourne. Countrywide Hydrogen Managing Director Jeff Drucker told Beck Chave what it will involve. A hydrogen highway will comprise the production of hydrogen at selected locations where transport corridors have the greatest volumes of heavy road transport. The production of hydrogen and that will be matched by a uh, refuelling station to allow vehicles to come by and uh, refuel their fuel cell trucks or cars which are hydrogen powered. Okay, maybe we need to take a step back and can you explain to us how hydrogen fueled vehicles work? What is hydrogen fuel? Hydrogen fuel is a gas. It's dispensed into a vehicle very much the same way as LPG would be put into a taxi or a, or a commercial vehicle. But as a gas, it goes through the engine of a, of a fuel cell vehicle, which is the fuel cell. And that fuel cell, when it allows hydrogen as a gas to meet with air, it creates an electric current, and the electric current is what drives the car. So they're basically, or or car or truck, so basically they're an electric vehicle, but they don't have a big battery like a a battery electric vehicle has. It has a fuel cell. That fuel cell takes the hydrogen, mixes it with oxygen, and creates an electric current to drive the vehicle. So does it have a tank that you actually fill up? How big is that tank? Yeah, it's got, well, I've got a a fuel cell, a Mirai, a Toyota, Toyota Mirai. It's got two tanks. One tank is under the the rear seat of the vehicle. The other tank is along the transmission hump um, in the middle of the vehicle. Together, those two tanks hold six kilograms of hydrogen, which probably doesn't mean much to anybody, but that six kilograms of hydrogen can be refuelled in about three minutes, and that six kilograms of hydrogen will take that car at least 600 kilometres. To refill the vehicle will cost around $50 if the hydrogen is purchased from one of our um, hydrogen refuelling stations. And so you're looking to create this highway to stretch, what, from Adelaide to Melbourne? Adelaide to Melbourne. So the highways comprise two elements to them. One is supplying hydrogen to vehicles that operate in a particular precinct, so whether it's around Mount Gambia, anywhere in the um, in the Green Triangle, around Portland, where goods are being um, taken from and projects being taken to port or to cities like Mount Gambia, as well as vehicles that go from major ports and major capital cities like Adelaide and Melbourne into regional areas and then from regional areas back to those capital cities. So what we do is identify what are the routes that are the heaviest um, for road transport because heavy road transport accounts for 5% of our, of our nation's emissions, which is a lot. So our goal is to make it have a huge impact on those emissions, abate those emissions by transitioning vehicles from diesel to hydrogen to do that, we need to identify where best to produce the hydrogen and where best to have the hydrogen available. So there's no anxiety about not being able to get to a refuelling station to refuel. Well, if we're talking about the highway from Adelaide to Melbourne, why Mount Gambia as a source of interest for hydrogen refuelling stations? Why not Bordertown or Keith? Because there is a huge interest among our customers that we've actually been able to build into a book in Tasmania. Tasmania, we're, uh, we're creating our first hydrogen highway from the north, servicing Devonport and Burnie through Launceston down to Hobart. 
And some of those customers, a lot of those customers have got interest in and around the Green Triangle area. We've also uh, last week announced uh, an agreement with a company called DGA, which is a Mitsubishi subsidiary, to develop a project at Portland, a two-stage project. One is for domestic supply through the hydrogen highway. The second is to create that project into an export project for Mitsubishi and DGA. So we've got a project at Portland. That meant we looked at then where are the where are the major road transport networks, corridors in the area, and Mount Gambier is the very, very first because of the volume of road transport in and around Mount Gambier and the Limestone Coast area. Then we, in discussion with the South Australian Government, have opened the door to working with them to identify how best to create a hydrogen highway in South Australia to link through Portland and Warrnambool to Melbourne. And Warrnambool's also got Deakin University where they've got their high cell project, which is looking at how hydrogen is best used in the economy. So it all comes together nicely that way. No reason why we couldn't down the track have, a, have a, another hydrogen highway that, that follows the Western Highway between Adelaide and Melbourne. There's been interest in and around Renmark and, and Mildura in Victoria to decarbonise road transport from those areas where there's huge volumes of produce coming both to Adelaide and to Melbourne. So these are really the early stages of, um, of a network of hydrogen highways, not just in South Australia and Victoria, but nationally as well. We've got strong interest in Queensland because it's such a massive state with a, a huge dependence on road transport and an ideal location for, the, for similar um, hydrogen highways to be developed. As Countrywide Hydrogen Managing Director Jeff Drucker there speaking with Beck Chave. Now, the facilities for this particular proposal would cost about $35 million and we're told could be completed by early 2027. Well, there are a number of options that transport companies are exploring to reduce their carbon footprint and southeast-based logging business. Fennell Forestry is nine months into a two-year trial using an electric truck to transport logs from plantations to the timber mills. Managing Director Wendy Fennell says economics and operational performance would determine what sort of fuels the trucking industry used in the future. She told Josh Bryan why the company went down this path. I could see there were targets being set by both government and corporate bodies and we need to determine how we're going to meet those targets. And in the heavy vehicle transport industry, it's not a change that can happen overnight. Lowering emissions is a long-term strategy that needs to be starting to work through now, hence why I started this trial. We're nine months into a two-year trial to see if these technologies uh, actually work in real operations. Could you tell me a little bit, I guess, about the the pressure that's created by those targets? Um, You mentioned there by government, but is it also something that, you know, certain companies are also putting in place? Yeah, Australia's a long way behind the rest of the world and we're affected both indirectly and directly by international standards, whether it's the boards that uh, run the companies that we work for um, or it's the equipment manufacturers that we source our equipment from overseas. They're changing rapidly and quickly uh, and we need to keep up with what is going on internationally to uh, meet those targets that are being sent uh, worldwide. And you mentioned that you're nine months into the trial now. How has it gone so far, I guess, just anecdotally? Yeah, it's gone well. So operationally, it's proving itself. Um, We're still working with government around the policy and the framework and regulations. We can't yet cut the same mass as a, for like, uh, diesel B-double, So we're two tonne under that at the moment because the electric vehicle is two tonne heavier. 
so we need to increase the mass that we cart and we're stepping through that with the government around their infrastructure and um, and so forth. And then looking at the economics of the uh, trial as well in regards to there's not energy credit uh, schemes in place yet where we get diesel fuel rebates. The incentive side around converting to zero emission vehicles, whether it's electric or hydrogen, um, don't seem to be in place in practice. So just stepping through how... Uh, this works economically, what customers and government alike are prepared to pay for zero emission vehicles. From a practicality standpoint, how has it been in terms of the existing infrastructure to charge electric vehicles? Um, has there been enough of that to allow for freighting? No, it hasn't. So I had to invest in my own infrastructure um, because there's not public infrastructure available. And so my truck needs to come back to my depot each time to swap the batteries out and they then are put on charge. It's a swap and go system, so the truck doesn't have to stand still any longer than 10 or 15 minutes. Um, And then another set of batteries goes into the charger and that can be programmed to charge at uh, off-peak times if required. So we're not drawing on the grid when everyone else is. Yeah, the charging side of it has worked uh, seamlessly. But has that been a challenge, I suppose, from an operational perspective compared to, you know, a normal truck that can just fill up on diesel? Yeah, it has. And so that's where we're now stepping through the economics of this and what does it mean to go to zero emissions. And hence, that's why I invested in this one truck to do a trial so that we can then look at what rate structures look like for zero emission vehicles so customers and government alike can understand what the environmental and economic results or implications are going to be from the heavy vehicle industry transitioning over to lower emissions. But there's plenty of different options to uh, reduce emissions in heavy vehicle transport. Uh, This is just one that suits the specific transport tasks that Uh, We do locally with uh, logs going from the forest into the various mills. But there's plenty of other ways or different ways that can be looked at to reduce emissions. But I guess what we're really looking for is the government to give us that policy and regulation and framework so industry can come up with the solutions that we need to move towards the 2030 targets. If there was better infrastructure in terms of particularly hydrogen-powered vehicles, um, recharging stations for those in our region. Is that something that you uh, would consider and do you think that's something that other companies would consider switching over to maybe more hydrogen fuel cell vehicles? Yeah, and again, it will come down to how it performs operationally um, and also what is the economics of it because freight is, is a service provider to customers and so really the customers are the ones that are driving what they're prepared to pay for the service that we provide and then what is the capital cost of the vehicles that we'll now need to use, whether it's going to be hybrid hydrogen diesel or whether it's going to be full electric. There's still a lot to work through and considering we're about to move into 2024, 2030 is not far away. That is Fennel Forestry Managing Director Wendy Fennel speaking there with Josh Bryan. And you can read more about this and the proposed hydrogen freight highway. It's all on the ABC News site if you want to hop on there and have a read. 
This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. And you're with Selena Green on this Tuesday. Did you make a New Year's resolution? Maybe something like get a gym membership, read more, drink less, that sort of thing. Well, New Year's celebrations, they aren't a new thing, New Year's resolutions. Most ancient cultures had some kind of tradition or New Year festival. The Babylonians were first recorded people to set what we would now call New Year's resolutions around 4,000 years ago. But the Babylonian year began in mid-March, apparently, when the crops were going in the ground. And for many years, the Roman calendar also began with the crops. Dr. Tamara Lewitt is from the University of Melbourne School of Historical and Philosophical Studies. She told Fiona Broom about the farming roots of New Year's resolutions. Well, the Romans made uh, what we call or could translate as vows uh, on New Year, but that meaning was a little bit different from what we think of as resolutions because at the time the view of the future wasn't the same kind of science-based view that we might have where we think well if I do something now it will have this result in the future you know if I eat healthy food then my heart will be healthier or something like that Uh, they saw their world as much more determined by deities by gods and goddesses or spirits or even uh, magic spells so the vow that Romans made on New Year was a vow to the gods to make offerings and do the things that the gods wanted them to do in the coming year so that the gods would be kind to them and so they might also use uh, magic spells uh, to bring good things about and farm people would use farm magic to try to bring about a good outcome on their farm. Uh, So if you wanted to protect against bad weather, for example, you might bury a toad in a pot in a field Uh, to protect against disease or bad weather. I don't know if they were cane toads, but I'm wondering if a cane toad would be a good thing to bury in a pot in your field to to keep away bad weather. I'm sure a lot of people would be quite keen to bury a cane toad. (laughs) Or you could hang up a wolf's tail to protect your sheep. Um, This was something I I, uh, put in a historical novel that I was researching uh, for uh, author Anna Siddor, A Message Through Time, and uh, we have a, a scene with a shepherd who has a wolf tail hung up to to protect the sheep because this was very much part of people's lives to to have these kinds of um, religious and, and magical protection in their lives. And so what were some of the the rituals around the celebration that happened uh, in the March New Year? We, many communities in the Mediterranean and the West Asian region um, do still celebrate New Year at that spring equinox period. And those celebrations continued? Yes. Well, um, it's the start of spring. So um, it, a, a lot of uh, rituals involving ideas of birth, rebirth, you know, seeds sprouting, these kinds of ideas. Um, and the Romans had an interesting twist on the March celebration. It was uh, very much a celebration for women and particularly mothers. It was a bit like a kind of Roman Mother's Day. So it was something that you celebrated in the home, not only in public. Husbands gave their wives presence, which was actually usually against Roman law. Husbands and wives were by law not allowed to give each other gifts. On this particular day, husbands were allowed to give a gift to their wives and they would pray for their welfare and the welfare of their marriages. Uh, And women uh, went to the temple of the goddess Juno, the goddess of childbirth. And if you were pregnant, you had your hair hanging loose, um, which again was pretty unusual for the Romans because women usually, married women wore their hair very, very much tied up 
but the most um, quirky kind of thing which the Romans did on this festival in March was uh, they had a role reversal between slaves and slave owners. Women served a meal to their household slaves instead of the slaves serving the slave owners, um, which was something that a couple of Roman festivals did and seems really unusual that, that suddenly the slaves were allowed to boss the, the owners around. You are listening to The Country Hour. We've got Dr Tamara Lewitt with us today telling us about the history of New Year's resolution and the farming roots of resolutions from the Roman days. So if we flash forward a couple of thousand years, we'll get to, to modern New Year celebrations. Wine is very central. A glass of, of fizzy wine is still seen as part of the ritual of toasting within a lot of our cultures. Uh, Dr. Lewitt, how was wine connected to Roman celebrations? And, and do you think people would have resolved to drink less wine um, in the new year in the, in the Roman days? Or is that a, a modern type of resolution? Oh, that's a very modern type of resolution, Fiona, because wine was absolutely essential um, to the diet in the ancient world. Everybody drank wine, men, women and children and even babies were weaned on wine uh, because wine was safer to drink than water. Water could have contamination or parasites, but if you put some wine in the water, uh, then uh, it would kill some of the uh, pathogens. And Romans always drank wine watered down, so they would drink about three parts water to one part wine. So uh, in a way, it was uh, you know it was much milder than what we would be drinking, except if it was used for religious rituals, because wine was not only essential for drinking, but it was the absolutely fundamental um, religious ritual. So the main offering that you would make to a deity in a festival, so whether it was New Year or any other kind of festival, of course the wine harvest particularly, you would make offerings to the wine god and you would always pour out some wine as part of your offerings. And that was pure wine. The gods had it pure. They didn't have it watered down. They did have some fizzy wine. Uh, what uh, pet nat, as, it's, as we call it today. So some of the sort of naturally, slightly uh, fizzy wine, but not, uh, of course, with the modern method of, of making it. Huh. Um, and most Roman wine was white wine. So we don't have any record of them using maceration of the grapes to give that um, deep red colour to wine. That's really interesting because if I think about depictions of Roman or, or ancient Greece, I tend to think of red wine. Yes, they they uh, they we we often do have that kind of image in our mind, don't we? They do seem to have some wine which was dark coloured or reddish, but maybe it was something to do with adding berries. They loved adding things to their wine. They added all sorts of things, nice things like herbs and honey, or horrible things like marble dust or salt water, which they added to their wines. Um, so it might have been to do with some sort of additive or it might have been oxidisation or it might even have been the colour of the grapes because um, wild grapes are a darker colour. So they might have been a bit closer to the wild species and just, you know, sort of stained the juice a little bit more. And maybe they did make some red wine, but we just don't know about it because 
the evidence isn't there. There's a lot we don't know about the ancient world. There is a some sort of trend within some uh, food production industries to go back to, to ancient grains or ancient styles yes. of food production. I wonder if anyone will be keen to take up some of the uh, the Roman styles of winemaking. Yes, well, people are. There's, um, there's a winery on the peninsula which is um, fermenting wine in uh, clay pots, which is how the Romans did it. And yes, there's certainly a lot of trend towards the natural winemaking uh, the Roman process was very uncontrolled. They didn't use sulphur to sterilise the wine and they couldn't. They didn't have yeast to add. So it was very often went wrong uh, and uh, quite often the wine would be either really sour, almost vinegar, which was sold as cheap wine or it would go mouldy or the uh, fermenting would get stuck. Um, so it was a bit, very, very much the luck of the draw. You basically just chucked your grapes on the ground and stomped on them for a while and then uh, put the juice into clay pots and hoped for the best and made plenty of sacrifices to the wine god. Uh, there's quite a few um, altars to, to the wine god or paintings of the wine god in, in winemaking buildings uh, from the Roman world. So they, they obviously uh, tried everything that they could to get as much protection as they could for the winemaking process. That is Roman wine and oil historian Dr. Tamara Lewitt, and she was speaking there to Fiona Broom. So you can find that story online. You can read more about it, and you can see some depictions and pictures of ancient New Year rituals. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't recommend maybe bothering going to bury any frogs <laughs> in your paddocks. I don't know if that's going to work out too well for you or the frog. This summer, have a safe one by learning your ABCs. A is for action plan. Having an action plan means you know what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. B is for be safe. Be aware of the hazards you may face in the local area. C is for connect. Connect to abc.net.au slash emergency for the latest emergency information. During an emergency, listen to your local ABC radio station. ABC Radio is your emergency broadcaster. Uh, the Australian government first started flying Pacific Islander workers to Australia to address agricultural shortages back in 2012. For some, the PALM scheme, as it's now known, is life-changing. For others, it's been a lonely experience. Back home, communities say their villages are being emptied of their best and brightest. In Victoria's east, Don McGrailed supports and advises Nivanoatu workers, and he told Rachel Lucas that PALM scheme workers face cultural challenges when they arrive here in Australia. I'm Don McGrailed and I live at Valencia Creek. I've been working in Vanuatu on an annual basis for the last 23 years. My wife was born there and so we have contacts with people from all levels of society, right from the very top of the political group right down to the basic subsistence farmers. And we've been running a medical outreach program there that has worked on virtually all of the inhabited islands. When I came to this district, it was all dairy farming, and now it's become largely horticultural. Horticulture is largely organised by big companies, and there's an export industry involved. There is massive requirements that were not in existence when I came to the district. And some of these farms get massive contracts. They've got to have a massive workforce. There aren't the sufficient number of people available to take on those particular roles. Back in 2012, the Australian government decided that we needed to get a greater degree of labour into the country. And we knew 
some people who were brought out here from our contact with Vanuatu. They were sent to pick apples in the Yarra Valley and uh, we were asked just to keep an eye on them. And so we found that they didn't have warm clothing and they didn't have any understanding of money and all sorts of things like that. So we became their advisors and their supporters. Things have changed enormously since then because at that stage, in this particular first instance, the farmer had actually got them out here as the labour hire companies. But the labour hire companies then started to develop links and they started bringing people out here on contract. The requirement was that they had to have one pastoral care worker within 300 kilometres of the worksite. And when you consider that the whole scheme rapidly grew to large numbers spread over a huge area, you had some labour hire companies that had maybe one pastoral care worker who was responsible for the whole of Gippsland and might have a thousand people down on the Kui Rup swamp doing asparagus. You might have had another three or four hundred or maybe more in Lindenau doing vegetables and more in other places too because gradually it built and Two parallel schemes were started. One was the seasonal worker scheme and the other was for a longer contract and people could work in meatworks or in hospitality and they could be here for some years. And in some situations that was working very well. In fact, when the whole thing did work, it was very good for the people because it was better than government aid going over. They actually got money into the villages, they got the things that they were really wanting and in particular the workers were wanting to get basic things like school fees. They value education highly but they couldn't afford to educate their kids so they were paying for those sorts of things. Then they started to see some of the things that we had that improved the standard of living and they wanted them too so gradually it was doing the sorts of things that aid had tried to do but hadn't really been successful in the more remote spots. At the moment, we have here in Gippsland, Vanuatu probably the largest group, and in Australia and New Zealand at the moment, there are roughly 10% of the Vanuatu population working. Now, if you think about 10% of the population of Vanuatu being out of the country, and those people being basically 18 to 40 years of age, that's a huge social upheaval. Many of these people have come leaving their children at home with extended family. They're socially vulnerable, they're under stress, they want the best for their families and that's why they're here but their families suffer also and when you've got disasters that do occur and in February Vanuatu had two very severe cyclones go through their capital city and go especially through the southern islands which are major food producers. The upheaval is enormous and the stress that's created here and the pressure that's put on the workers to try and produce some money that will compensate or rebuild what has been damaged is enormous. The demand is increasing. The need for other areas to be covered is also involved in this. We've already started to include aged care under this new PALM scheme so that people can come in and work in aged care. And there's also some talk of expanding further than that into other areas that might benefit from having this labour force.
That's Nee Vanuatu advocate Don McRae, ending that story from Rachel Lucas. And that was just a small slice of that story. So you can find the article and an audio documentary online. Just head to abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks for your company today. I'm about to send you off to the one o'clock news. I'll be back tomorrow for more Country Hour. The ABC Listen app lets you take ABC Radio with you wherever you go. At home, in the gym, up a ladder, on the road, interstate, out of space. Download the ABC Listen app today. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.